Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 1, Chapter 22 of The Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part 1, Chapter 22. Five Months More. A violent earthquake had shaken Cape Bathurst. Such convulsions were probably frequent in this volcanic region, and the connection between them and eruptions was once more demonstrated. Hobson well understood the significance of what had occurred, and waited in anxious suspense. He knew that the earth might open and swallow up the little colony but only one shock was felt, and that was rather a rebound than a vertical upheaval, which made the house lean over toward the lake, and burst open its walls. Immediately after this one shock, the ground again became firm and motionless. The house, although damaged, was still habitable. The breaches in the walls were quickly repaired, and the pipes of the chimneys were patched together again somehow. Fortunately, the wounds the soldiers had received in their struggle with the bears were slight and merely required dressing. Two miserable days ensued, during which the woodwork of the beds and the planks of the partition walls were burnt, and the most pressing repairs executed by McNabb and his men. The piles well driven into the earth had not yielded, but it was evident that the earthquake had caused a sinking of the level of the coast on which the fort was built which might seriously compromise the safety of the building. Hobson was most anxious to ascertain the extent of the alteration of elevation, but the pitiless cold prevented him from venturing outside. But at last there were symptoms of an approaching change in the weather. The stars shone with rather less brilliancy, and on the 11th January the barometer fell slightly. Hazy vapours floated in the air, the condensation of which would raise the temperature, and on the 12th January the wind veered to the southwest, and snow fell at regular intervals. The thermometer outside suddenly rose to 15 degrees above zero, and to the frozen colonists it was like the beginning of spring. At eleven o'clock the same morning all were out of doors. They were like a band of captives, unexpectedly set free. They were, however, absolutely forbidden to go beyond the encant of the fort, in case of awkward meetings. The sun had not yet reappeared above the horizon, but it approached it nearly enough to produce a long twilight, during which objects could be distinctly seen to a distance of two miles, 
and Hobson's first thought was to ascertain what difference the earthquake had produced in the appearance of the surrounding districts. Certain changes had been effected. The crest of the promontory of Cape Bathurst had been broken off, and large pieces of the cliff had been flung upon the beach. The whole mass of the cape seems to have been bent towards the lake, altering the elevation of the plateau on which the fort was built. The soil on the west appears to have been depressed, whilst that on the east had been elevated. One of the results of this change of level would unfortunately be that when the thaw set in, the waters of the lake and of Paulina River, in obedience to the law requiring liquids to maintain their level, would inundate a portion of the western coast. The stream would probably scoop out another bed, and the natural harbour at its mouth would be destroyed. The hills on the eastern bank seemed to be considerably depressed, but the cliffs on the west were too far off for any accurate observations to be made. The important alteration produced by the earthquake may, in fact, be summed up in a very few words. The horizontal character of the ground was replaced by a slope from east to west. "'Well, Lieutenant,' said Mrs. Barnett, laughing, "'you are good enough to give my name to the port and river, and now there will be neither Paulina River nor Port Barnett. I must say I have been hardly used.' "'Well, madam,' replied Hobson, "'although the river is gone, the lake remains, and we will call it Lake Barnett. I hope that it, at least, will remain true to you.' Mr. and Mrs. Joliffe, on leaving the house, had hurried, one to the dog-house, the other to the reindeer-stable. The dogs had not suffered much from their lone confinement, and rushed into the court, barking with delight. One reindeer had died, but the others, though thin, appeared to be in good health. "'Well, madam,' said the lieutenant, "'we have got through our troubles better than we could have expected.' "'I never despaired,' replied the lady. "'The miseries of an arctic winter would not conquer men like you and your companions.' "'To own the truth, madam,' replied Hobson, "'I never experienced such intense cold before in all the years I have spent in the north, "'and if it had lasted many days longer we should have all been lost.' "'The earthquake came in the nick of time, then, not only to drive away the bears, "'but also to modify the extremity of the cold?' "'Perhaps so, madam.' All natural phenomena influence each other to a certain extent. But the volcanic structure of the soil makes me rather uneasy. I cannot but regret the close vicinity of this active volcano. If the lava from it cannot reach us, the earthquake connected with it can. Just look at our house now. Oh, all that can be put right when the fine weather comes, and you will make it all the stronger for the painful experience you have gained." "'Of course we shall, but meanwhile I'm afraid you won't find it very comfortable.' "'Are you speaking to me, Lieutenant? To an old traveller like me? I shall imagine myself one of the crew of a small vessel, and now that it does not pitch and toss, I shall have no fear of being seasick.' "'What you say does not surprise me,' replied Hobson. "'We all know of your grandeur of character, your moral courage, and your imperturbable good temper.' you have done much to help us all to bear our troubles and i thank you in my own name and that of my men you flatter me lieutenant you flatter me no no i only say what every one thinks but may i ask you one question you know that next june captain creventy is to send us a convoy with provisions which will take back our furs to fort reliance 
I suppose our friend Thomas Black, after seeing his eclipse, will return with the captain's men. Do you mean to accompany him? Do you mean to send me back? asked the lady with a smile. Oh, madam. Well, my superior officer, replied Mrs. Barnett, extending her hand to the lieutenant, I shall ask you to allow me to spend another winter at Fort Hope. Next year, one of the company's ships will probably anchor off Cape Bathurst, and I shall return in it. Having come overland, I should like to go back by Bering Strait. The lieutenant was delighted with his companion's decision. The two had become sincerely attached to each other, and had many tastes and qualities in common. The hour of separation could not fail to be painful to both. And who could tell what further trials awaited the colonists, in which their combined influence might sustain the courage of the rest? On the 20th January, the sun at last reappeared, and the polar night was at an end. It only remained above the horizon for a few minutes, and was greeted with joyous hurrahs by the settlers. From this date, the days gradually increased in length. Throughout the month of February, and until the 15th March, there were abrupt transitions from fine to bad weather. The fine days were so cold that the hunters could not go out, and in the bad weather snowstorms kept them in. It was only between whiles that any outdoor work could be done, and long excursions were out of the question. There was no necessity for them, however, as the traps were in full activity. In the latter end of the winter, martens, foxes, ear-mines, wolverines, and other valuable animals were taken in large number, and the trappers had plenty to do. In March, an excursion was ventured on as far as Walrus's Bay, and it was noticed that the earthquake had considerably altered the form of the cliffs, which were much depressed, whilst the igneous hills beyond, with their summits wrapped in mist, seemed to look larger and more threatening than ever. About the 20th March, the hunters sighted the first swans migrating from the south, and uttering shrill cries as they flew. A few snow-buntings and winter-hawks were also seen, but the ground was still covered with thick layers of frozen snow, and the sun was powerless to melt the hard surface of the lake and sea. The breaking up of the frost did not commence until early in April. The ice burst with a noise like the discharge of artillery. Sudden changes took place in the appearance of the icebergs, broken by collisions, undermined by the action of the water, once more set free. Huge masses rolled over with an awful crash, in consequence of the displacement of their centre of gravity, causing fractures and fissures in the ice-fields, which greatly accelerated their breaking up. At this time the mean temperature was thirty-two degrees above zero so that the upper layer of ice on the beach rapidly dissolved, whilst the chain of icebergs, drifted along by the currents of the polar sea, gradually drew back and became lost in the fogs of the horizon. On the 15th April the sea was open, and a vessel from the Pacific Ocean, coming through Bering Strait, could certainly have skirted along the American coast and have anchored off Cape Bathurst. Whilst the ice was disappearing from the ocean, Lake Barnett was also laying aside its slippery armour, much to the delight of the thousands of ducks and other waterfowl which began to teem upon its banks. As Hobson had foreseen, however, the level of the lake was affected by the slope of the soil. That part of the beach 
which stretched away from the encant of the fort, was bounded on the east by wooded hills, had increased considerably in extent, and Hobson estimated that the waters of the lake had receded five hundred paces on the eastern bank. As a natural consequence, the water on the western side had risen, and if not held back by some natural barrier, would inundate the country. On the whole, it was fortunate that the slope was from east to west, for had it been from west to east, the factory must have been submerged. The little river dried up as soon as the thaw set free its waters. It might almost be said to have run back to its source, so abrupt was the slope of its bed from north to south. "'We have now to erase a river from the map of the Arctic regions,' observed Hobson to his sergeant. "'It would have been embarrassing if we had been dependent on the truant for drinkable water. Fortunately we still have Lake Barnett, and I don't suppose our thirsty men will drain it quite dry.' "'Yes, we've got the lake,' replied the sergeant. "'But do you think its waters have remained sweet?' Hobson started, and looked at his subordinate with knitted brows. It had not occurred to him that a fissure in the ground might have established a communication between the lake and the sea. Should it be so, ruin must ensue, and the factory would inevitably have to be abandoned, after all. The lieutenant and Hobson rushed to the lake, and found their fears groundless. Its waters were still sweet. Early in May the snow had disappeared in several places, and scanty vegetation clothed the soil. Tiny mosses and slender grasses timidly pushed up their stems above the ground, and the sorrel and cochlearia seeds which Mrs. Joliffe had planted began to sprout. The carpet of snow had protected them through the bitter winter, but they still had to be saved from the beaks of birds and the teeth of rodents. This arduous and important task was confided to the worthy corporal, who acquitted himself of it with the zeal and devotion of a scarecrow in a kitchen-garden. The long days had now returned, and hunting was resumed. Hobson was anxious to have a good stock of furs for the agents from Fort Reliance to take charge of when they arrived as they would do in a few weeks. Marbra and Sabine, and the others, therefore, commenced the campaign. Their excursions were neither long nor fatiguing. They never went further than two miles from Cape Bathurst, for they had never before been in a district so well stocked with game, and they were both surprised and delighted. Martins, reindeers, hares, caribous, foxes, and ear-mines passed close to their guns. One thing, however, excited some regret in the minds of the colonists. Not a trace was to be seen of their old enemies, the bears, and it seemed as if they had taken all their relations with them. Perhaps the earthquake had frightened them away, for they have a very delicate, nervous organization, if such an expression can be applied to a mere quadruped. It was a pity they were gone, for vengeance could not be wreaked upon them. The month of May was very wet, Rain and snow succeeded each other. The mean temperature was only forty-one degrees above zero. Fogs were of frequent occurrence, and so thick that it would often have been imprudent to go any distance from the fort. Peterson and Calais once caused their companions grave anxiety by disappearing for forty-eight hours. They had lost their way, and turned to the south when they thought they were near to Walrus's Bay. They came back exhausted, and half dead with hunger. 
June came at last, and with it really fine warm weather. The colonists were able to leave off their winter clothing. They worked zealously at repairing the house, the foundations of which had to be propped up, and Hobson also ordered the construction of a large magazine at the southern corner of the court. The quantity of game justified the expenditure of time and labor involved. The number of furs collected was already considerable, and it was necessary to have some place set aside in which to keep them. The lieutenant now expected every day the arrival of the detachment to be sent by Captain Creventy. A good many things were still required for the new settlement. The stores were getting low, and if the party had left the fort in the beginning of May, they ought to reach Cape Bathurst towards the middle of June. It will be remembered that the captain and his lieutenant had fixed upon the Cape as the spot of rendezvous, and Hobson, having constructed his fort on it, there was no fear of the reinforcements failing to find him. From the 15th June, the districts surrounding the Cape were carefully watched. The British flag waved from the summit of the cliff, and could be seen at a considerable distance. It was probable that the convoy would follow the lieutenant's example, and skirt along the coast from Coronation Gulf. If not exactly the shortest, it was the surest route. At a time, when the sea being free from ice, the coastline could be easily followed. When the month of June passed without the arrival of the expected party, Hobson began to feel rather uneasy, especially as the country again became wrapped in fogs. He began to fear that the agents might lose their way, and often talked the matter over with Mrs. Barnett, McNabb, and Ray. Thomas Black made no attempt to conceal his uneasiness, for he was anxious to return with the party from Fort Reliance as soon as he had seen his eclipse, and should anything keep them back from coming, he would have to resign himself to another winter, a prospect which did not please him at all. And in reply to his eager questions, Hobson could say little to reassure him. The fourth July dawned, no news. Some men sent to the southeast to reconnoitre returned, bringing no tidings. Either the agents had never started, or they had lost their way. The latter hypothesis was unfortunately the more probable. Hobson knew Captain Creventy, and felt confident that he had sent off the convoy at the time named. His increasing anxiety will therefore be readily understood. The fine season was rapidly passing away. Another two months and the Arctic winter, with its bitter winds, its whirlpools of snow, and its long nights, would again set in. Hobson, as we well know, was not a man to yield to misfortune without a struggle. Something must be done, and with the ready concurrence of the astronomer, the following plan was decided on. It was now the 5th July. In another fortnight, July 18th, the solar eclipse was to take place and after that Thomas Black would be free to leave Fort Hope. It was therefore agreed that if by that time the agents had not arrived, a convoy of a few men and four or five sledges should leave the factory and make for the great slave lake, taking with them some of the most valuable furs, and if no accident befell them, they might hope to arrive at Fort Reliance in six weeks at the latest, that is to say, towards the end of August. This matter settled, Thomas Black shrank back into his shell, and became once more the man of one idea, 
awaiting the moment when the moon, passing between the orb of day and himself, should totally eclipse the disk of the sun. End of chapter 22 Part 1, Chapter 23 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part 1, Chapter 23 The Eclipse of the 18th, July, 1860 the mist did not disperse. The sun shone feebly through thick curtains of fog, and the astronomer began to have a great dread lest the eclipse should not be visible after all. Sometimes the fog was so dense that the summit of the cape could not be seen from the court of the fort. Hobson got more and more uneasy. He had no longer any doubts that the convoy had gone astray in the strange land. Moreover, vague apprehensions and sad forebodings increased his depression. He could not look into the future with any confidence. Why, he would have found it impossible to explain. Everything apparently combined to reassure him. In spite of the great rigour of the winter, his little colony was in excellent health. No quarrels had risen amongst the colonists, and their zeal and enthusiasm was still unabated. The surrounding districts were well stocked with game, the harvest of furs had surpassed his expectations, and the company might well be satisfied with the result of the enterprise. Even if no fresh supply of provisions arrived, the resources of the country were such that the prospect of a second winter need awake no misgivings. Why, then, was Lieutenant Hobson losing hope and confidence? He and Mrs. Barnett had many a talk on the subject— and the latter did all she could to raise the drooping spirits of the commanding officer, urging upon him all the considerations enumerated above, and one day, walking with him along the beach, she pleaded the cause of Cape Bathurst and the factory, built at the cost of so much suffering, with more than usual eloquence. "'Yes, yes, madam, you are right,' replied Hobson, "'but we can't help our presentiments. I am no visionary.' Twenty times in my soldier's life I have been in critical circumstances, and have never lost presence of mind for one instance. And now, for the first time in my life, I am uneasy about the future. If I had to face a positive danger, I should have no fear, but a vague uncertain peril, of which I have only a presentiment. "'Of what danger do you mean?' inquired Mrs. Barnett. "'A danger from men, from animals, or the elements?' "'Of animals I have no dread whatever, madam.' It is for them to tremble before the hunters of Cape Bathurst. Nor do I fear men. These districts are frequented by none but Eskimo, and the Indians seldom venture so far north. Besides, Lieutenant, said Mrs. Barnett, the Canadians, whose arrival you so much feared in the fine season, have never appeared. I am sorry for it, madam. What, you regret the absence of the rivals, who are so evidently hostile to your company? "'Madam, I am both glad and sorry that they have not come. "'That will, of course, puzzle you, "'but observe that the expected convoy from Fort Reliance has not arrived. "'It is the same with the agents of the St. Louis Fur Company. "'They might have come, and they have not done so. "'Not a single Eskimo has visited this part of the coast during the summer either.' "'And what do you conclude from all this?' inquired Mrs. Barnett. "'I conclude that it is not so easy to get to Cape Bathurst or to Fort Hope as we could wish.' 
The lady looked into the lieutenant's anxious face, struck with the melancholy and significant innotation of the word easy. "'Lieutenant Hobson,' she said earnestly, "'if you fear neither men nor animals, I must conclude that your anxiety has reference to the elements.' "'Madam,' he replied, "'I do not know if my spirit be broken, or if my presentiments blind me, but there seems to me to be something uncanny about this district. If I had known it better, I should not have settled down in it.' I have already called your attention to certain peculiarities, which to me appear inexplicable. The total absence of stones everywhere, and the clear-cut line of the coast. I can't make out about the primitive formation of this end of the continent. I know that the vicinity of a volcano may cause some phenomena, but you remember what I said to you on the subject of the tides? Oh, yes, perfectly. Were the sea ought, according to the observations of explorers in these latitudes, to have risen fifteen or twenty feet, it has scarcely risen one. Yes, but that you accounted for by the irregular distribution of land and the narrowness of the straits. I tried to account for it, that is all, replied Hobson, but the day before yesterday I noticed a still more extraordinary phenomenon, which I cannot even try to explain, and I doubt if the greatest savants could do so either. Mrs. Barnett looked inquiringly at Hobson. "'What has happened?' she exclaimed. "'Well, the day before yesterday, madam, when the moon was full, and according to the almanac, the tide ought to have been very high. The sea did not even rise one foot as it did before. It did not rise at all.' "'Perhaps you may be mistaken,' observed Mrs. Barnett. "'I am not mistaken. I saw it with my own eyes. The day before yesterday, July 4th, there was positively no tide on the coast of Cape Bathurst. "'And what do you conclude from that?' inquired Mrs. Barnett. "'I conclude, madam,' replied the lieutenant, "'either that the laws of nature are changed, or that this district is peculiarly situated. Or rather I conclude nothing. I explain nothing. I am puzzled. I do not understand it, and therefore—therefore I am anxious.' Mrs. Barnett asked no more questions. Evidently, the total absence of tides was as unnatural and inexplicable as would be the absence of the sun from the meridian at noon. Unless the earthquake had so modified the conformation of the coasts of the Arctic regions as to account for it, but no, such an idea could not be entertained by any one accustomed to note terrestrial phenomena. As for supposing that the lieutenant could be mistaken in his observations, that was impossible and that very day he and mrs barnett by means of beach marks made on the beach ascertained beyond all doubt that whereas a year before the sea rose a foot there was now no tide whatever the matter was kept a profound secret as hobson was unwilling to render his companions anxious but he might often be seen standing motionless and silent upon the summit of the cape gazing across the sea which was now open and stretched away as far as the eye could reach during the month of july hunting the furred animals was discontinued as the martins foxes and others had already lost their winter beauty no game was brought down but that required for food such as caribous polar hares etc which strange to say instead of being scared away by the guns continued to multiply near the fort Mrs. Barnett did not fail to note this peculiar, and as the event proved, significant fact. 
No change had taken place in the situation on the 15th July. No news from Fort Reliance. The expected convoy did not arrive, and Hobson resolved to execute his project of sending to Captain Creventy, as Captain Creventy did not come to him. Of course, none but Sergeant Long could be appointed to the command of the little troop, although the faithful fellow would rather not have been separated from his lieutenant. A considerable time must necessarily elapse before he could get back to Fort Hope. He would have to pass the winter at Fort Reliance, and return the next summer, eight months at least. It is true, either McNabb or Ray could have taken the sergeant's place, but then they were married, and the one being a master carpenter, and the other the only blacksmith, the colonists could not well have dispensed with their services. Such were the grounds on which the lieutenant chose long, and the sergeant submitted with military obedience. The four soldiers elected to accompany him were Belche, Pond, Peterson, and Calais, who declared their readiness to start. Four sledges and their teams of dogs were told off for the service. They were to take a good stock of provisions and the most valuable of the furs, foxes, ear-mines, martens, swans, lynxes, muskrats, gluttons, etc., all contributed to the precious convoy. The start was fixed for the morning of the 19th July, the day after the eclipse. Of course Thomas Black was to accompany the sergeant, and one sledge was to convoy his precious person and instruments. The worthy savant endured agonies of suspense in the few days preceding the phenomenon which he awaited with so much impatience. He might well be anxious, for one day it was fine and another wet. Now mists obscured the sun, or thick fogs hid it altogether, and the wind veered to every point of the horizon with provoking thickleness and uncertainty. What if during the few moments of the eclipse the queen of the night and the great orb of day should be wrapped in an opaque cloud at the critical moment, so that he, the astronomer, Thomas Black, comes so far to watch the phenomenon, should be unable to see the luminous corona or the red prominences. How terrible would be the disappointment! How many dangers, how much suffering, how much fatigue would have been gone through in vain! "'To have come so far to see the moon and not to see it!' he cried, in a comically piteous tone. No, he could not face the thought, and early of an evening he would climb to the summit of the cape and gaze into the heavens. The fair Phoebe was nowhere to be seen, for it being three days before new moon, she was accompanying the sun in his daily course, and her light was quenched in his beams. Many a time did Thomas Black relieve his overburdened heart by pouring out his troubles to Mrs. Barnett. The good lady felt sincerely sorry for him, and one day, anxious to reassure him, she told him that the barometer showed a certain tendency to rise and reminded him that they were in the fine season. "'The fine season!' cried the poor astronomer, shrugging his shoulders. "'Who can speak of a fine season in such a country as this?' "'Well, but Mr. Black,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'suppose, for the sake of argument, that you miss the eclipse by any unlucky chance. I suppose there will be another some day. The eclipse of July 18th will not be the last of this century.' "'No, madam, no.' returned Black, there will be five more total eclipses of the sun before 1900, one on the 31st December, 1861, which will be total for the Atlantic Ocean, 
the Mediterranean, and the Sahara Desert. A second, on the 22nd December, 1870, total for the Azores, the south of Spain, Algeria, Sicily, and Turkey. A third, on the 19th August, 1887, total for the northeast of Germany, the south of Russia, and Central Asia. A fourth, on 9th April, 1896, visible in Greenland, Lapland, and Siberia. And lastly, a fifth, on the 28th May, 1900, which will be a total eclipse for the United States, Spain, Algeria, and Egypt. Well, Mr. Black, resumed Mrs. Barnett, if you lose the eclipse of the 18th July, 1860, you can console yourself by looking forward to that of the 31st December, 1861. It will only be seventeen months. I can console myself, madam, said the astronomer gravely, by looking forward to that of 1896. I shall have to wait not seventeen months, but thirty-six years. May I ask why? Because of all the eclipse, it alone, that of the ninth August, 1896, will be total for places in high latitudes, such as Lapland, Siberia, or Greenland. But what is the special interest of an observation taken in these elevated latitudes? What special interest? cried Thomas Black. Why, a scientific interest of the highest importance. Eclipses have very rarely been watched near the pole, where the sun, being very little above the horizon, is considerably increased in size. The disk of the moon, which is to intervene between us and the sun, is subject to a similar apparent extension, and therefore it may be that the red prominences and the luminous corona can be more thoroughly examined. This, madam, is why I have travelled all this distance to watch the eclipse above the seventieth parallel. A similar opportunity will not occur until 1896, and who can tell if I shall be alive then? To this burst of enthusiasm there was no reply to be made, and the astronomer's anxiety and depression increased, for the inconsistent weather seemed more and more disposed to play him some ill-natured trick. It was very fine on the 16th July, but the next day it was cloudy and misty, and Thomas Black became really ill. The feverish state he had been in for so long seemed likely to result in a serious illness. Mrs. Barnett and Hobson tried in vain to soothe him, and Sergeant Long and the others could not understand how it was possible to be so unhappy for love of the moon. At last, the great day, the 18th July, dawned. According to the calculations of the astronomers, the total eclipse was to last four minutes, thirty-seven seconds. That is to say, from forty-three minutes, fifteen seconds past eleven, to forty-seven minutes, fifty-seven seconds past eleven a.m. "'What can I do? What do I ask?' moaned the astronomer, tearing his hair. "'Only one little corner of the sky free from clouds, only the small space in which the eclipse is to take place. Ay, and for how long? For four short minutes. After that, let it snow, let it thunder, let the elements break loose in a fury I should care no more for it all than a snail for a chronometer. It is not to be denied that Thomas Black had some grounds for his fears. It really seemed likely that observations would be impossible. At daybreak the horizon was shrouded in mists, heavy clouds were coming up from the south, and covering the very portion of the sky in which the eclipse was to take place. But doubtless the patron saint of astronomers had pity on poor Black, for towards eight o'clock a slight wind arose and swept the mists and clouds from the sky, leaving it bright and clear. 
a cry of gratitude burst from the lips of the astronomer, and his heart beat high with newly awakened hope. The sun shone brightly, and the moon, so soon to darken it, was as yet invisible in its glorious beams. Thomas Black's instruments were already carefully placed on the promontory, and having pointed them towards the southern horizon, he awaited the event with calmness restored, and the coolness necessary for taking his observation. What was there left to fear? Nothing, unless it was that the sky might fall upon his head. At nine o'clock there was not a cloud, not a vapour, left upon the sky from the zenith to the horizon. Never were circumstances more favourable to an astronomical observation. The whole party were anxious to take part in the observation, and all gathered round the astronomer on Cape Bathurst. Gradually the sun rose above the horizon, describing an extended arc above the vast plain stretching away to the south. No one spoke, but awaited the eclipse in solemn silence. Towards half-past nine the eclipse commenced. The disk of the moon seemed to graze that of the sun. But the moon's shadow was not to fall completely on the earth, hiding the sun until between forty-three minutes past eleven and forty-seven minutes fifty-seven seconds past eleven. That was the time fixed in the almanacs and every one knows that no error can creep into them, established, verified, and controlled as they are by the scientific men of all the observatories in the world. The astronomer had brought a good many glasses with him, and he distributed them amongst his companions, that all might watch the progress of the phenomenon without injury to the eyes. The brown disk of the moon gradually advanced, and terrestrial objects began to assume a peculiar orange hue, whilst the atmosphere on the zenith completely changed colour. At a quarter past ten, half the disk of the sun was darkened, and a few dogs, which happened to be at liberty, showed signs of uneasiness, and howled piteously. The wild ducks, thinking night had come, began to utter sleepy calls, and to seek their nests, and the mothers gathered their little ones under their wings. The hush of eventide fell upon all animated nature. At eleven o'clock two-thirds of the sun were covered, and all terrestrial objects became a kind of vinous red. A gloomy twilight set in, to be succeeded during the four minutes of totality by absolute darkness. A few planets, amongst others, Mercury and Venus, began to appear, and some constellations, Capulet, Symbol, and symbol of Taurus, and symbol of Orion. The darkness deepened every moment. Thomas Black remained motionless with his eye, glued to the glass of his instrument, eagerly watching the progress of the phenomenon. At forty-three minutes past eleven, the disks of the two luminaries ought to be exactly opposite to each other, that of the moon completely hiding that of the sun. Forty-three minutes past eleven, announced Hobson, who was attentively watching the minute-hand of his chronometer. Thomas Black remained motionless, stooping over his instrument. Half a minute passed, and then the astronomer drew himself up, with eyes distended and eager. Once more he bent over the telescope, and cried in a choked voice, "'She is going! She is going! The moon! The moon is going! She is disappearing, running away!' 
True enough, the disk of the moon was gliding away from that of the sun, without having completely covered it. The astronomer had fallen backwards, completely overcome. The four minutes were past. The luminous corona had not appeared. "'What is the matter?' inquired Hobson. "'The matter is,' screamed the poor astronomer, "'that the eclipse was not total, not total for this portion of the globe, d'ye hear? "'It was not total, I say, not total.' "'Then all your almanacs are incorrect.' "'Incorrect, don't tell that to me, if you please, Lieutenant Hobson.' "'But what then?' said Hobson, suddenly changing countenance. "'Why,' said Black, "'we are not, after all, on the seventieth parallel?' "'Only fancy!' cried Mrs. Barnett. "'We can soon prove it.' "'We can soon prove it,' said the astronomer, whose eyes flashed with rage and disappointment. "'The sun will pass the meridian in a few minutes. My sextant, quick, make haste!' One of the soldiers rushed to the house and fetched the instrument required. The astronomer pointed it upon the sun. He watched the orb of day pass the meridian, and rapidly noted down a few calculations. "'What was the situation of Cape Bathurst a year ago, when we took the latitude?' he inquired. Seventy degrees, forty-four minutes, and thirty-seven seconds,' replied Hobson. "'Well, sir, it is now seventy-three degrees, seven minutes, and twenty seconds. You see, we are not under the seventieth parallel.' "'Or rather, we are no longer there,' muttered Hobson. A sudden light had broken in upon his mind. All the phenomena, hitherto so inexplicable, were now explained.' Cape Bathurst had drifted three degrees further north since the arrival of the lieutenant and his companions. End of chapter 23 And end of part 1 Part 2, chapter 1 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part 2. Chapter 1. A Floating Fort. And so Fort Hope, founded by Lieutenant Hobson on the borders of the Polar Sea, had drifted. Was the courageous agent of the company to blame for this? No, anyone might have been deceived as he had been. No human prevision could have foreseen such a calamity. He meant to build upon a rock, and he had not even built upon sand. The peninsula of Victoria, which the best maps of English America joined to the American continent, had been torn suddenly away from it. This peninsula was, in fact, nothing but an immense piece of ice, five hundred square miles in extent, converted by successive deposits of sand and earth into apparently solid ground, well clothed with vegetation connected with the mainland for thousands of centuries the earthquake of the eighth of january had dragged it away from its moorings and it was now a floating island at the mercy of the winds and waves and had been carried along the arctic ocean by powerful currents for the last three months yes fort hope was built upon ice hobson at once understood the mysterious change in their latitude the isthmus that is to say the neck of land which connected the peninsula of victoria with the mainland had been snapped in two by a subterranean convulsion connected with the eruption of the volcano some months before as long as the northern winter continued the frozen sea maintained things as they were but when the thaw came 
when the ice-fields melted beneath the rays of the sun, and the huge icebergs, driven out into the offing, drew back to the furthest limits of the horizon, when the sea at last became open, the whole peninsula drifted away, with its woods, its cliffs, its promontories, its inland lagoon, and its coastline, under the influence of a current about which nothing was known. For months this drifting had been going on unnoticed by the colonists, who even when hunting did not go far from Fort Hope. Beach marks, if they had been made, would have been useless, for heavy mists obscured everything at a short distance. The ground remained apparently firm and motionless, and there was, in short, nothing to hint to the lieutenant and his men that they had become islanders. The position of the new island, with regard to the rising and setting of the sun, was the same as before. Had the cardinal points changed their position, had the island turned round, the lieutenant, the astronomer, or Mrs. Barnett would certainly have noticed and understood the change. But in its course the island had thus far followed a parallel of latitude, and its motion, though rapid, had been imperceptible. Although Hobson had no doubt of the moral and physical courage and determination of his companions, he determined not to acquaint them with the truth. It would be time enough to tell them of their altered position when it had been thoroughly studied. Fortunately, the good fellows, soldiers or workmen, took little notice in the astronomical observations, and not being able to see the consequences involved, they did not trouble themselves about the change of latitude just announced. The lieutenant determined to conceal his anxiety, and seeing no remedy for the misfortune, mastered his emotion by a strong effort, and tried to console Thomas Black, who was lamenting his disappointment and tearing his hair. The astronomer had no doubt about the misfortune of which he was the victim. Not having, like the lieutenant, noticed the peculiarities of the district, he did not look beyond the one fact in which he was interested— on the day fixed at the time named the moon had not completely eclipsed the sun and what could he conclude but that to the disgrace of observatories the almanacs were false and that the long-desired eclipse his own eclipse thomas black's which he had come so far and through so many dangers to see had not been total for this particular district under the seventieth parallel no no it was impossible to believe it he could not face the terrible certainty and he was overwhelmed with disappointment he was soon to learn the truth however meanwhile hobson let his men imagine that the failure of the eclipse could only interest himself and the astronomer and they returned to their ordinary occupations but as they were leaving corporal joliffe stopped suddenly and said touching his cap may i ask you one question sir "'Of course, Corporal. Say on,' replied the lieutenant, who was wondering what was coming. But Joliffe hesitated, and his little wife nudged his elbow. "'Well, lieutenant,' resumed the corporal, "'it's just about the seventieth degree of latitude, if we are not where we thought we were.' The lieutenant frowned. "'Well,' he replied evasively, "'we made a mistake in our reckoning. Our first observation was wrong, but what does that concern you?' "'Please, sir, it's because of the pay,' replied Joliffe with a scowl. "'You know well enough that the company promised us double pay.' Hobson drew a sigh of relief. It will be remembered that the men had been promised higher pay if they succeeded in settling on or above the seventieth degree north latitude. 
and Joliffe, who always had an eye to the main chance, had looked upon the whole matter from a monetary point of view, and was afraid the bounty would be withheld. "'You needn't be afraid,' said Hobson, with a smile. "'And you can tell your brave comrades that our mistake, which is really inexplicable, will not in the least prejudice your interests. We are not below, but above the seventieth parallel, and so you will get your double pay.' "'Thank you, sir, thank you,' replied Joliffe, with a beaming face. "'It isn't that we think much about money, but that the money sticks to us.' and with this sage remark the men drew off little dreaming what a strange and fearful change had taken place in the position of the country sergeant long was about to follow the others when hobson stopped him with the words remain here sergeant long the subordinate officer turned on his heels and waited for the lieutenant to address him all had now left the cape except mrs barnett madge thomas black and the two officers since the eclipse mrs barnett had not uttered a word she looked inquiringly at hobson who tried to avoid meeting her eyes for some time not another word was spoken all involuntarily turned towards the south where the broken isthmus was situated but from their position they could only see the sea horizon on the north had cape bathurst been situated a few hundred feet more above the level of the ocean they would have been able, at a glance, to ascertain the limits of their island home. All were deeply moved at the sight of Fort Hope and all its occupants, borne away from all solid ground, and floating at the mercy of winds and waves. "'Then, Lieutenant,' said Mrs. Barnett at last, "'all strange phenomena you observed are now explained.' "'Yes, madam,' he replied, "'everything is explained. The peninsula of Victoria.' now an island which we thought firm ground with an immovable foundation is nothing more than a vast sheet of ice welded for centuries to the american continent gradually the wind has strewn it with earth and sand and scattered over them the seeds from which have sprung the trees and mosses with which it is clothed rainwater filled the lagoon and produced the little river vegetation transformed the appearance of the ground but beneath the lake beneath the soil of earth and sand in a word beneath our feet is a foundation of ice which floats upon the water by reason of its being specifically lighter than it yes it is a sheet of ice which bears us up and is carrying us away and this is why we have not found a single flint or stone upon its surface this is why its shores are perpendicular this is why we found ice ten feet below the surface when we dug the reindeer pit this, in short, is why the tide was not noticeable on the peninsula, which rose and sank with the ebb and flow of the waves. "'Everything is indeed explained,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'and your presentiments did not deceive you. But can you explain why the tides, which do not affect us at all now, were to a slight extent perceptible on our arrival?' "'Simply because, madam, on our arrival the peninsula was still connected by means of its flexible isthmus.' with the American continent. It offered a certain resistance to the current, and on its northern shores the tide rose two feet beyond low watermark, instead of the twenty we reasonably expected. But from the moment when the earthquake broke the connecting link, from the moment when the peninsula became an island, free from all control, it rose and sank with the ebb and flow of the tide, and, 
as we noticed together at full moon a few days ago, no sensible difference was produced on our shores. In spite of his despair, Thomas Black listened attentively to Hobson's explanations, and could not but see the reasonableness of his deductions. But he was furious at such a rare, unexpected, and as he said, ridiculous phenomenon occurring just so as to make him miss the eclipse. And he said not a word, but maintained a gloomy, even haughty silence. "'Poor Mr. Black,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'it must be owned that an astronomer was never more hardly used than you since the world began.' "'In any case, however,' said Hobson, turning to her, "'we have neither of us anything to reproach ourselves with. No one can find fault with us. Nature alone is to blame.' The earthquake cut off our communication with the mainland, and converted our peninsula into a floating island. And this explains why the furred and other animals imprisoned like ourselves have become so numerous round the fort. "'This, too, is why the rivals you so much dreaded have not visited us, Lieutenant,' exclaimed Madge. "'And this,' added the sergeant, "'accounts for the non-arrival of the convoy sent to Cape Bathurst by Captain Creventy. "'And this is why—' said Mrs. Barnett, looking at the lieutenant. I must give up all hope of returning to Europe, this year at least. The tone of voice in which the lady made this last remark showed that she resigned herself to her fate more readily than could have been expected. She seemed suddenly to have made up her mind to make the best of the situation, which would no doubt give her an opportunity of making a great many interesting observations. And after all, what good would grumbling have done? Recriminations were worse than useless. They could not have altered their position, or have checked the course of the wandering island. And there was no means of reuniting it to a continent. No, God alone could decide the future of Fort Hope. They must bow to His will. End of Part 2, Chapter 1 Part two Chapter two of the Fur Country This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne Part two Chapter two Where are we? It was necessary carefully to study the unexpected and novel situation in which the agents of the company now found themselves and Hobson did so with his chart before him. He could not ascertain the longitude of Victoria Island, the original name being retained, until the next day, and the latitude had already been taken. For the longitude, the altitude of the sun must be ascertained before and after noon, and two hours' angles must be measured. At two o'clock p.m., Hobson and Black took the height of the sun above the horizon with the sextant and they hoped to recommence the same operation the next morning, towards ten o'clock a.m., so as to be able to infer from the two altitudes obtained the exact point of the Arctic Ocean then occupied by their island. The party did not, however, at once return to the fort, but remained talking together for some little time on the promontory. Madge declared she was quite resigned, and evidently thought only of her mistress, at whom she could not look without emotion. She could not bear to think of the sufferings and trials her dear girl might have to go through in the future. She was ready to lay down her life for Paulina, but what good could that do now? 
She knew, however, that Mrs. Barnett was not a woman to sink under her misfortunes, and indeed at present there was really no need for any one to despair. There was no immediate danger to be dreaded, and a catastrophe might even yet be avoided. This Hobson carefully explained to his companions. Two dangers threatened the island floating along the coast of North America, only two. It could be drawn by the currents of the open sea to the high polar latitudes from which there is no return. Or the current could take it to the south, perhaps through the Bering Strait into the Pacific Ocean. In the former contingency the colonists, shut in by ice and surrounded by impassable icebergs, would have no means of communication with their fellow-creatures, and would die of cold and hunger in the solitudes of the north. In the latter contingency, Victoria Island, driven by the currents to the western waters of the Pacific, would gradually melt and go to pieces beneath the feet of its inhabitants. In either case, death would await the lieutenant and his companions, and the fort, erected at the cost of so much labor and suffering, would be destroyed. But it was scarcely probable that either of these events would happen. The season was already considerably advanced and in less than three months the sea would again be rendered motionless by the icy hand of the polar winter. The ocean would again be converted into an ice-field, and by means of sledges they might get to the nearest land, the coast of Russian America, if the island remained in the east, or the coast of Asia, if it were driven to the west. For, added Hobson, we have absolutely no control over our floating island, having no sail to hoist as in a boat, we cannot guide it in the least. Where it takes us, we must go. All that Hobson said was clear, concise, and to the point. There could be no doubt that the bitter cold of winter would solder Victoria Island to the vast ice-field, and it was highly probable that it would drift neither too far north nor too far south. To have crossed a few hundred miles of ice was no such terrible prospect, for brave and resolute men accustomed to long excursions in the Arctic regions. It would be necessary, it was true, to abandon Fort Hope, the object of so many hopes, and to lose the benefit of all their exertions. But what of that? The factory, built upon a shifting soil, could be of no further use to the company. Sooner or later it would be swallowed up by the ocean. And what was the good of useless regrets? It must, therefore, be deserted as soon as circumstances should permit. The only thing against the safety of the colonists was, and the lieutenant dwelt long on this point, that during the eight or nine weeks which must elapse before the solidification of the Arctic Ocean, Victoria Island might be dragged too far north or south. Arctic explorers had often told of pieces of ice being drifted an immense distance without any possibility of stopping them. Everything, then, depended on the force and direction of the currents from the opening of Bering Strait, and it would be necessary carefully to ascertain all that a chart of the Arctic Ocean could tell. Hobson had such a chart, and invited all who were with him on the Cape to come to his room and look at it. But before going down to the fort, he once more urged upon them the necessity of keeping their situation a secret. It is not yet desperate, he said, and it is therefore quite unnecessary to damp the spirits of our comrades, who will perhaps not be able to understand, as we do, all the chances in our favour. 
would it not be prudent to build a boat large enough to hold us all and strong enough to carry us a few hundred miles over the sea observed mrs barnett it would be prudent certainly said hobson and we will do it i must think of some pretext for beginning the work at once and give the necessary orders to the head carpenter but taking to a boat can only be a forlorn hope when everything else has failed we must try all we can to avoid being on the island when the ice breaks up and we must make for the mainland as soon as ever the sea is frozen over hobson was right it would take about three months to build a thirty or thirty-five ton vessel and the sea would not be open when it was finished it would be very dangerous to embark the whole party when the ice was breaking up all round and he would be well out of his difficulties if he could get across the ice to firm ground before the next thaw set in this was why hobson thought a boat a forlorn hope a desperate makeshift and every one agreed with him secrecy was once more promised for it was felt that hobson was the best judge of the matter and a few minutes later the five conspirators were seated together in the large room of Fort Hope, which was then deserted, eagerly examining an excellent map of the oceanic and atmospheric currents of the Arctic Ocean, special attention being naturally given to that part of the polar sea between Cape Bathurst and Bering Strait. Two principal currents divide the dangerous latitudes comprehended between the polar circle and the imperfectly known zone called the Northwest Passage, since McClure's daring discovery. At least only two have been hitherto noticed by marine surveyors. One is called the Kamchukta Current. It takes its rise in the offing outside the peninsula of that name, follows the coast of Asia, and passes through Bering Strait, touching Cape East, a promontory of Siberia. After running due north for about six hundred miles from the strait, it turns suddenly to the east pretty nearly following the same parallel as McClure's passage, and probably doing much to keep that communication open for a few months in the warm season. The other current, called Bering Current, flows just the other way. After running from east to west at about a hundred miles at the most from the coast, it comes into collision, so to speak, with the Kamchukta Current at the opening of the strait, and turning to the south approaches the shores of Russian America crosses Bering Sea, and finally breaks on the kind of circular dam formed by the Aleutian Islands. Hobson's map gave a very exact summary of the most recent nautical observations, so that it could be relied on. The lieutenant examined it carefully before speaking, and then, pressing his hand to his head, as if oppressed by some sad presentiment, he observed, "'Let us hope that the fate will not take us to remote northern latitudes. Our wandering island would run a risk of never returning. Why, Lieutenant? broke in Mrs. Barnett. Why, madam, replied Hobson, look well at this part of the Arctic Ocean, and you will readily understand why. Two currents, both dangerous for us, run opposite ways. When they meet, the island must necessarily become stationary, and that at a great distance from any land." At that point it will have to remain for the winter, and when the next thaw sets in, it will either follow the Kamchukta current to the deserted regions of the northwest, or it will float down with the Bering current to be swallowed up by the Pacific Ocean. 
"'That will not happen, Lieutenant,' said Madge, in a tone of earnest conviction. "'God would never permit that.' "'I can't make out,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'whereabouts in the polar sea we are at this moment, "'for I see but one current from the offing of Cape Bathurst, "'which bears directly to the northwest, "'and that is the dangerous Kamchatka current. "'Are you not afraid that it has us in its fatal embrace, "'and is carrying us with it to the shores of North Georgia?' "'I think not.' replied hobson after a moment's reflection why not because it is a very rapid current madam and if we had been following it for three months we should have had some land in sight by this time and there is none absolutely none where then do you suppose we are inquired mrs barnett most likely between the kamchatka current and the coast perhaps in some vast eddy unmarked upon the map that cannot be lieutenant replied mrs barnett quickly "'Why not, madam, why not?' "'Because, if Victoria Island were in an eddy, "'it would have veered round to a certain extent, "'and our position with regard to the cardinal points "'would have changed in the last three months, "'which is certainly not the case.' "'You're right, madam, you are quite right. "'The only explanation I can think of is that "'there is some other current not marked on our map. "'Oh, that to-morrow were here, "'that I might find out our longitude. "'Really, this uncertainty is terrible.' "'Tomorrow will come,' observed Madge. "'There is nothing to do but wait.' The party, therefore separated, all returning to their ordinary occupations. Sergeant Long informed his comrades that the departure for Fort Reliance, fixed for the next day, was put off. He gave his reasons that the season was too far advanced to get to the southern factory before the great cold set in that the astronomer was anxious to complete his meteorological observations, and would therefore submit to another winter in the north, that game was so plentiful, provisions from Fort Reliance were not needed, etc., etc. But about all these matters the brave fellows cared little. Lieutenant Hobson ordered his men to spare the furred animals in future, and only to kill edible game, so as to lay up fresh stores for the coming winter. He also forbade them to go more than two miles from the fort, not wishing Marbra and Sabine to come suddenly upon a sea-horizon, where the isthmus connecting the peninsula of Victoria with the mainland was visible a few months before. The disappearance of the neck of land would inevitably have betrayed everything. The day appeared endless to Lieutenant Hobson. Again and again he returned to Cape Bathurst, either alone or accompanied by Mrs. Barnett. The latter, inured to danger, showed no fear. She even joked the lieutenant about his floating island being perhaps, after all, the proper conveyance for going to the North Pole. With favourable current might they not reach that hitherto inaccessible point of the globe? Lieutenant Hobson shook his head as he listened to his companion's fancy, and kept his eyes fixed upon the horizon, hoping to catch a glimpse of some land, no matter what, in the distance. But no, sea and sky met in an absolutely unbroken circular line, confirming Hobson's opinion that Victoria Island was drifting to the west rather than in any other direction. Lieutenant, at last, said Mrs. Barnett, don't you mean to make a tour of our island as soon as possible? Yes, madam, of course, as soon as I have taken our bearings, I mean to ascertain the form and extent of our dominions. 
It seems, however, that the fracture was made at the isthmus itself, so that the whole peninsula has become an island. A strange destiny is ours, Lieutenant, said Mrs. Barnett. Others return from their travels to add new districts to geographical maps, but we shall have to efface the supposed peninsula of Victoria. The next day, July 18th, the sky was very clear, and at ten o'clock in the morning Hobson obtained a satisfactory altitude of the sun, and comparing it with that of the observation of the day before, he ascertained exactly the longitude in which they were. The island was then in 157 degrees, 37 minutes longitude west from Greenwich. The latitude, obtained the day before at noon, almost immediately after the eclipse was, as we know, 73 degrees, 7 minutes, 20 seconds north. The spot was looked out on the map in the presence of Mrs. Barnett and Sergeant Long. It was indeed a most anxious moment, and the following result was arrived at. The wandering island was moving in a westerly direction, borne along by a current unmarked on the chart, and unknown to hydrographers, which was evidently carrying it towards Bering Strait. All the dangers foreseen by Hobson were then imminent, if Victoria Island did not again touch the mainland before the winter. "'But how far are we from the American continent? That is the most important point, just at present,' said Mrs. Barnett. Hobson took his compasses, and carefully measured the narrowest part of the sea between the coast and the seventieth parallel. We are actually more than two hundred and fifty miles from Point Barrow, the northernmost extremity of Russian America, he replied. We ought to know, then, how many miles the island has drifted since it left the mainland, said Sergeant Long. Seven hundred miles at least, replied Hobson, after having again consulted the chart. And at what time do you suppose the drifting commenced? Most likely towards the end of April. The ice field broke up then and the icebergs which escaped melting drew back to the north. We may therefore conclude that Victoria Island has been moving along with the current parallel with the coast at an average rate of ten miles a day. No very rapid pace, after all, exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. Too fast, madam, when you think where we may be taken during the two months in which the sea will remain open in this part of the Arctic Ocean. The three friends remained silent, and looked fixedly at the chart of the fearful polar regions, towards which they were being irresistibly drawn, and which have hitherto successfully resisted all attempts to explore them. "'There is nothing, then, nothing to be done, nothing to try?' said Mrs. Barnett, after a pause. "'Nothing, madam,' replied Hobson, "'nothing whatever. We must wait.' We must all pray for the speedy arrival of the Arctic winter, generally so much dreaded by our sailors, but which alone can save us now. The winter will bring ice, our only anchor of salvation, the only power which can arrest the course of this wandering island. End of chapter 2 Part 2 Chapter 3 The Fur Country by Jules Verne this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. 
Part Two, Chapter Three, A Tour of the Island. From that day, July eighteenth, it was decided that the bearings should be taken as on board a vessel whenever the state of the atmosphere rendered the operation possible. Was not the island, in fact, a disabled ship, tossed about without sails or helm? The next day, after taking the bearings, Hobson announced that without change of latitude, the island had advanced several miles further west. McNab was ordered to commence a construction of a huge boat. Hobson telling him, in explanation, that he proposed making a reconnaissance of the coast as far as Russian American next summer. The carpenter asked no further questions, but proceeded to choose his wood and fixed upon the beach at the foot of Cape Bathurst as his dockyard. So that he might easily be able to launch his vessel. Hobson intended to set out the same day on his excursion round the island in which he and his comrades were imprisoned. Many changes might take place in the configuration of this sheet of ice, subject as it was to the influence of the variable temperature of the waves, and it was important to determine its actual form at the present time, its area, and its thickness in different parts. The point of rupture, which was most likely at the isthmus itself, ought to be examined with special care. The fracture being still fresh, it might be possible to ascertain the exact arrangement of the stratified layers of ice and earth of which the soil of the island was composed. But in the afternoon, the sky clouded over suddenly, and a violent squall, accompanied with thick mists, swept down upon the fort. Presently, torrents of rain fell. And large hailstones rattled on the roof, whilst a few distant claps of thunder were heard, a phenomenon of exceedingly rare occurrence in such elevated latitudes. Hobson was obliged to put off his trip and wait until the fury of the elements abated, but during the twentieth, twenty-first, and twenty-second July, no change occurred. The storm raged, the floods of heaven were let loose, and the waves broke upon the beach with a deafening roar. Liquid avalanches were flung with such force upon Cape Bathurst that there was reason to dread that it might give way. Its stability was, in fact, somewhat problematical, as it consisted merely of an aggregation of sand and earth without any firm foundation. Vessels at sea might well be pitied in this fearful gale, but the floating island was of too vast a bulk to be affected by the agitation of the waves and remained indifferent to their fury. During the night of the twenty-second July, the tempest suddenly ceased. A strong breeze from the northeast dispelled the last mists upon the horizon. The barometer rose a few degrees, and the weather appeared likely to favor Hobson's expedition. He was to be accompanied by Mrs. Barnett and Sergeant Long, and expected to be absent a day or two. The little party took some salt meat, biscuits, and a few flasks of rum with them. And there was nothing in their excursion to surprise the rest of the colonists. The days were just then very long; the sun only disappearing below the horizon for a few hours. There were no wild animals to be feared now. The bears seemed to have fled by instinct from the peninsula, whilst it was still connected with the mainland. But to neglect no precaution, each of the three explorers was provided with a gun. The lieutenant and his subordinate. Also carried hatches and ice chisels, which a traveller in the polar regions should never be without. During the absence of the lieutenant and the sergeant, 
the command of the fort fell to Corporal Joliffe, or rather to his little wife, and Hobson knew that he could trust her. Thomas Black could not be depended on. He would not even join the exploring party. He promised, however, to watch the northern latitudes very carefully, and to note any change which should take place in the sea or the position of the cape during the absence of the lieutenant. Mrs. Barnett had endeavoured to reason with the unfortunate astronomer, but he would listen to nothing. He felt that nature had deceived him, and that he could never forgive her. After many a hearty farewell, the lieutenant and his two companions left the fort by the postern gate, and, turning to the west, followed the lengthened curve of the coast between Capes Bathurst and Eskimo. It was eight o'clock in the morning. The oblique rays of the sun struck upon the beach, and it touched with many a brilliant tint. The angry billows of the sea were sinking to rest, and the birds, ptarmigans, guillemots, puffins, and petrels, driven away by the storm, were returning by thousands. Troops of ducks were hastening back to Lake Barnett, flying close, although they knew it not, to Mrs. Joliffe's saucepan. Polar hares, martins, muskrats, and ear-mines rose before the travellers and fled at their approach, but not with any great appearance of haste or terror. The animals evidently felt drawn towards their old enemies by a common danger. "'They know well enough that they are hemmed in by the sea, and cannot quit the island,' observed Hobson. "'They are all in the habit of seeking warmer climates in the south in the winter, are they not?' inquired Mrs. Barnett. "'Yes, madam, but unless they are presently able to cross the ice-field, they will have to remain prisoners like ourselves.' and I am afraid the great number will die of cold or hunger. "'I hope they'll be good enough to supply us with food for a long time,' observed the sergeant, "'and I think it is very fortunate that they had not the sense to run away before the rupture of the isthmus.' "'The birds will, however, leave us?' added Mrs. Barnett. "'Oh, yes, madam. Everything with wings will go. They can traverse long distances without fatigue, and, more fortunate than ourselves, they will regain.' Terra firma. "'Could we not use them as messengers?' asked Mrs. Barnett. "'A good idea, madam, a capital idea,' said Hobson. "'We might easily catch some hundreds of these birds, and tie a paper round their necks with our exact situation written upon it. John Ross, in 1848, tried similar means to acquaint the survivors of the Franklin expedition with the presence of his ships, the Enterprise, and the Investigator in the Polar Seas.' He caught some hundreds of white foxes in traps, riveted a copper collar round the neck of each, with all the necessary information engraved upon it, and then set them free in every direction. Perhaps some of the messengers may have fallen into the hands of the shipwrecked wanderers. Perhaps so, replied Hobson. I know that an old fox was taken by Captain Hatteras during his voyage of discovery, wearing a collar, half-worn away, and hidden beneath his thick white fur. What we cannot do with the quadrupeds, we will do with the birds. Chatting thus, and laying plans for the future, the three explorers continued to follow the coast. They noticed no change. The abrupt cliffs, covered with earth and sand, showed no signs of a recent alteration in the extent of the island. It was, however, to be feared that the vast sheet of ice would be worn away at the base by the action of the warm currents, and on this point Hobson was naturally anxious. 
By eleven o'clock in the morning, the eight miles between Capes Bathurst and Eskimo had been traversed. A few traces of the encampment of Kalumaha's party still remained. Of course, the snow huts had entirely disappeared, but some cinders and walrus bones marked the spot. The three explorers halted here for a short time. They intended to pass the few short hours of the night at Walrus's Bay, which they hoped to reach in a few hours. They breakfasted, seated on a slightly rising ground, covered with a scanty and stunted herbage. Before their eyes lay the ocean, bounded by a clearly defined sea-horizon, without a sail or an iceberg to break the monotony of the vast expanse of water. "'Should you be very much surprised if some vessel came in sight now, Lieutenant?' inquired Mrs. Barnett. "'I should be very agreeably surprised, madam,' replied Hobson. "'It is not at all uncommon for whalers to come as far north as this, especially now that the Arctic Ocean is frequented by whales and chacolots. "'But you must remember that it is the 23rd July, and the summer is far advanced.' The whole fleet of whaling vessels is probably now in Gulf Katsubi, at the entrance to the strait. Whalers shun the sudden changes in the Arctic Ocean, and with good reason. They dread being shut in the ice, and the icebergs, avalanches, and ice-fields they avoid are very fine things for which we earnestly pray. "'They will come, Lieutenant,' said Long. Have patience, in another two months the waves will no longer break upon the shores of Cape Eskimo. Cape Eskimo, observed Mrs. Barnett with a smile, that name, like those we gave to the other parts of the peninsula, may turn out unfortunate too. We have lost Port Barnett and Paulina River. Who can tell whether Cape Eskimo and Walrus's Bay may not also disappear in time? They too will disappear, madam. "'replied Hobson, and after them the whole of Victoria Island, "'for nothing now connects it with a continent, "'and it is doomed to destruction. "'The result is inevitable, "'and our choice of geographical names will be thrown away. "'But fortunately the Royal Society has not yet adopted them, "'and Sir Roderick Murchison will have nothing to efface on his maps. "'One name he will,' exclaimed the sergeant. "'Which?' inquired Hobson. "'Cape Bathurst,' replied Long. "'Ah, yes, you are right. "'Cape Bathurst must now be removed from maps of the polar regions.' Two hours' rest were all the explorers cared for, and at one o'clock they prepared to resume their journey. Before starting, Hobson once more looked round him from the summit of Cape Eskimo, but seeing nothing worthy of notice, he rejoined Mrs. Barnett and Sergeant Long. "'Madam,' he said, addressing the lady, "'you have not forgotten the family of natives we met here last winter?' "'Oh, no, I have always held dear little Kalumaha in friendly remembrance. "'She promised to come and see us again at Fort Hope, "'but she will not be able to do so. "'But why do you ask me about the natives now?' "'Because I remember something to which, much to my regret, "'I did not at the time attach sufficient importance.' "'What was that?' You remember the uneasy surprise the men manifested at finding a big factory at the foot of Cape Bathurst. Oh, yes, perfectly. You remember that I tried to make out what the natives meant, and that I could not do so. Yes, I remember. Well, added Hobson, I know why they shook their heads. 
from tradition, experience, or something. The Eskimo knew what the peninsula really was. They knew we had not built on firm ground. But as things had probably remained as they were for centuries, they thought there was no immediate danger, and that it was not worth while to explain themselves. "'Very likely you are right,' replied Mrs. Barnett. "'But I feel sure that Kalumaha had no suspicion of her companion's fears, or she would have warned us.' Hobson quite agreed with Mrs. Barnett, and Sergeant Long observed, "'It really seems to have been by a kind of fatality that we settled ourselves upon this peninsula, just before it was torn away from the mainland. I suppose, Lieutenant, that it had been connected for a very long time, perhaps for centuries.' "'You might say for thousands and thousands of years, Sergeant,' replied Hobson. "'Remember that soil on which we are treading has been brought here by wind little by little.' that the sand has accumulated grain by grain. Think of the time it must have taken for the seeds of firs, willows, and arbutus to become shrubs and trees. Perhaps the sheet of ice on which we float was welded to the continent before the creation of man. Well, cried Long, it really might have waited a few centuries longer before it drifted. How much anxiety and how many dangers we might then have been spared. Sergeant Long's most sensible remark closed the conversation, and the journey was resumed. From Cape Eskimo to Walrus's Bay, the coast ran almost due south, following the 127th meridian. Looking behind them, they could see one corner of the lagoon, its waters sparkling in the sunbeams, and a little beyond the wooded heights in which it was framed. Large eagles soared above their heads, their cries and the loud flapping of their wings, breaking the stillness, and furred animals of many kinds, martens, polecats, earmines, etc., crouching behind some rising ground, or hiding amongst the stunted bushes and willows, gazed inquiringly at the intruders. They seemed to understand that they had nothing to fear. Hobson caught a glimpse of a few beavers, wandering about, evidently ill at ease, and puzzled at the disappearance of the little river, with no ledges to shelter them, and no stream by which to build a new home. They were doomed to die of cold when the severe frost set in. Sergeant Long also saw a troop of wolves crossing the plain. It was evident that specimens of the whole Arctic fauna were imprisoned on the island, and there was every reason to fear that when famished with hunger all the carnivorous beasts would be formidable enemies to the occupants of Fort Hope. Fortunately, however, one race of animals appeared to be quite unrepresented. Not a single white bear was seen. Once the sergeant thought he saw an enormous white mass moving about on the other side of a clump of willows, but on close examination decided that he was mistaken. The coast near Walrus's Bay was, on the whole, only slightly elevated above the sea level and in the distance the waves broke into running foam as they do upon a sloping beach. It was to be feared that the soil had little stability, but there was no means of judging of the modifications which had taken place since their last visit, and Hobson much regretted that he had not made benchmarks upon Cape Bathurst before he left, that he might judge of the amount of sinking or depression which took place. He determined, however, to take this precaution on his return. It will be understood that, under the circumstances, 
the party did not advance very rapidly. A pause was often made to examine the soil, or to see if there were any sign of an approaching fracture on the coast, and sometimes the explorers wandered inland for half a mile. Here and there the sergeant planted branches of willow or birch to serve as landmarks for the future, especially wherever undermining seemed to be going on rapidly, and the solidity of the ground was doubtful. By this means it would be easy to ascertain the changes which might take place. They did advance, however, and at three o'clock in the afternoon they were only three miles from Walrus's Bay, and Hobson called Mrs. Barnett's attention to the important changes which had been effected by the rupture of the isthmus. Formerly the southwestern horizon was shut in by a long, slightly curved coastline, formed by the shores of Liverpool Bay. Now a sea line bounded the view, the continent having disappeared. Victoria Island ended in an abrupt angle where it had broken off, and all felt sure that on turning round that angle the ocean would be spread out before them, and that its waves would bathe the whole of the southern side of the island, which was once the connecting link between Walrus's Bay and Washburn Bay. Mrs. Barnett could not look at the changed aspect of the scene without emotion. She had expected it, and yet her heart beat almost audibly. She gazed across the sea for the missing continent, which was now left several hundred miles behind, and it rushed upon her mind with a fresh stock that she would never set foot on America again. Her agitation was indeed excusable, and it was shared by the lieutenant and the sergeant. All quickening their steps, eager to reach the abrupt angle in the south, the ground rose slightly as they advanced, and the layers of earth and sand became thicker. This, of course, was explained by the former proximity of this part of the coast to the true continent. The thickness of the crust of ice, and of the layer of earth at the point of junction, increasing, as it probably did, every century, explained the long resistance of the isthmus which nothing but some extraordinary convulsion could have overcome. Such a convulsion was the earthquake of the 8th January, which, although it had only affected the continent of North America, had sufficed to break the connecting link, and to launch Victoria Island upon the wide ocean. At four o'clock p.m. the angle was reached. Walrus's Bay, formed by an indentation of the firm ground, had disappeared. It had remained behind with the continent. "'By my faith, madam,' explained the sergeant, "'it's lucky for you we didn't call it Paulina Barnet Bay.' "'Yes,' replied the lady. "'I begin to think I am an unlucky godmother for newly discovered places.'" End of chapter 3 Part two, chapter four of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part two, chapter four. A night encampment. And so Hobson had not been mistaken about the point of rupture. It was the isthmus which had yielded in the shock of the earthquake. Not a trace was to be seen of the American continent, not a single cliff, 
Even the volcano on the west had disappeared. Nothing but the sea everywhere. The island on this side ended in a cape, coming to an almost sharp point, and it was evident that the substratum of ice, fretted by the warmer waters of the current and exposed to all the fury of the elements, must rapidly dissolve. The explorers resumed their march, following the course of the fracture, which ran from west to east in an almost straight line. Its edges were not jagged or broken, but clear-cut, as if the division had been made with a sharp instrument, and here and there the conformation of the soil could easily be examined. The banks, half ice, half sand and earth, rose some ten feet from the water. They were perfectly perpendicular, without the slightest slope, and in some places there were traces of recent landslips. Sergeant Long pointed to several small blocks of ice floating in the offing and rapidly melting, which had evidently been broken off from their island. The action of the warm surf would, of course, soon eat away the new coastline, which time had not yet closed with a kind of cement of snow and sand, such as covered the rest of the beach, and altogether the state of things was very far from reassuring. Before taking any rest, Mrs. Barnett, Hobson, and Long were anxious to finish their examination of the southern edge of the island. There would be plenty of daylight, for the sun would not set until eleven o'clock p.m. The brilliant orb of day was slowly advancing along the western horizon, and its oblique rays cast long shadows of themselves before the explorers, who conversed at intervals after long, silent pauses during which they gazed at the sea, and thought of the dark future before them. Hobson intended to encamp for the night at Washburn Bay, when there eighteen miles would have been traversed, and, if he were not mistaken, half his circular journey would be accomplished. After a few hours' repose, he meant to return to Fort Hope along the western coast. No fresh incident marked the exploration of the short distance between Walrus's Bay and Washburn Bay, and at seven o'clock in the evening the spot chosen for the encampment was reached. A similar change had taken place here. Of Washburn Bay nothing remained but the curve formed by the coastline of the island, and which was once its northern boundary. It stretched away without a break for seven miles to the cape they had named Cape Michael. This side of the island did not appear to have suffered at all, in consequence of the rupture. The thickets of pine and birch, massed a little behind the cape, were in their fullest beauty at this time of the year, and a good many furred animals were disporting themselves on the plain. A halt was made at Washburn Bay, and the explorers were able to enjoy an extended view on the south, although they could not see any great distance on the north. The sun was so low on the horizon that its rays were intercepted by the rising ground on the west, and did not reach the little bay. It was not, however, yet night, nor could it be called twilight, as the sun had not set. "'Lieutenant,' said Long, "'if by some miracle a bell were now to ring, what would you suppose it would mean?' "'That it was supper-time,' replied Hobson. "'Don't you agree with me, Mrs. Barnett?' "'Indeed I do,' replied the lady addressed. "'And as our cloth is spread for us, let us sit down. 
This moss, although slightly worn, will suit us admirably, and was evidently intended for us by Providence. The bag of provisions was opened, some salt meat, a hair pâté from Mrs. Jolie's larder, with a few biscuits, formed their frugal supper. The meal was quickly over, and Hobson returned to the southwest angle of the island, whilst Mrs. Barnett rested at the foot of a low fir-tree, and Sergeant Long made ready the night quarters. The lieutenant was anxious to examine the piece of ice which formed the island, to ascertain, if possible, something of its structure. A little bank produced by a landslip enabled him to step down to the level of the sea, and from there he was able to look closely at the steep wall which formed the coast. Where he stood, the soil rose scarcely three feet above the water. The upper part consisted of a thin layer of earth and sand, mixed with crushed shells, and the lower of hard, compact, and if we may so express it, metallic ice, strong enough to support the upper soil of the island. The layer of ice was not more than one foot above the sea level. In consequence of the recent fracture, it was easy to see the regular disposition of the sheets of ice piled up horizontally, and which had evidently been produced by successive frosts in comparatively quieter waters. We know that freezing commences on the surface of liquids, and as the cold increases, the thickness of the crust becomes greater, the solidification proceeding from the top downwards. That at least is the case in waters that are at rest. It has, however, been observed that the very reverse is the case in running waters, the ice forming at the bottom and subsequently rising to the surface. It was evident, then, that the flow which formed the foundation of Victoria Island had been formed in calm waters on the shores of the North American continent. The freezing had evidently commenced on the surface, and the thaw would begin at the bottom, according to a well-known law, so that the ice-field would gradually decrease in weight as it became thawed by the warmer waters through which it was passing, and the general level of the island would sink in proportion. This was the great danger. As we have just stated, Hobson noticed that the solid ice, the ice-field properly so called, was only about one foot above the sea-level. We know that four-fifths of a floating mass of ice are always submerged. For one foot of an iceberg or ice-field above the water, there are four below it. It must, however, be remarked that the density, or rather specific weight of floating ice, varies considerably according to its mode of formation or origin. The ice-masses, which proceed from sea-water, porous, opaque, and tinted with blue or green, according as they are struck by the rays of the sun, are lighter than ice formed from fresh water. All things considered, and making due allowance for the weight of the mineral and vegetable layer above the ice, Hobson concluded it to be about four or five feet thick below the sea-level. The different declivities of the island, the little hills and rising ground, would of course only affect the upper soil, and it might reasonably be supposed that the wandering island was not immersed more than five feet. This made Hobson very anxious, only five feet, setting aside the causes of dissolution to which the ice-field 
might be subjected, would not the slightest shock cause a rupture of the surface? Might not a rough sea or gale of wind cause a dislocation of the ice-field, which would lead to its breaking up into small portions, and to its final decomposition? Oh, for the speedy arrival of winter, with its bitter cold! Would that the column of mercury were frozen in its cistern! Nothing but the rigor of an arctic winter could consolidate and thicken the foundations of their island, and establish a means of communication between it and the continent. Hobson returned to the halting-place, little cheered by his discoveries, and found Long busy making arrangements for the night, for he had no idea of sleeping beneath the open sky, although Mrs. Barnett declared herself quite ready to do so. He told the lieutenant that he intended to dig a hole in the ice big enough to hold three persons, in fact, to make a kind of snow-hut, in which they would be protected from the cold night air. "'In the land of the Eskimo,' he said, "'nothing is wiser than to do as the Eskimo do.' Hobson approved, but advised the sergeant not to dig too deeply, as the ice was not more than five feet thick. Long set to work. With the aid of his hatchet and ice-chisel, he soon cleared away the earth, and hollowed out a kind of passage, sloping gently down to the crust of ice. He next attacked the brittle mass, which had been covered over with sand and earth for so many centuries. It would not take more than an hour to hollow out a subterranean retreat, or rather a burrow with walls of ice, which would keep in the heat, and therefore serve well for a resting-place during the short night. Whilst Long was working away, like a white ant, Hobson communicated the result of his observations to Mrs. Barnett. He did not disguise from her that the construction of Victoria Island rendered him very uneasy. He felt sure that the thinness of the ice would lead to the opening of ravines on the surface before long, where it would be impossible to foresee, and of course it would be equally impossible to prevent them. The wandering island might at any moment settle down in consequence of a change in its specific gravity, or break up into more or less numerous islets, the duration of which must necessarily be ephemeral. He judged, therefore, that it would be best for the members of the colony to keep together as much as possible, and not to leave the fort, that they might all share the same chances." Hobson was proceeding further to unfold his views, when cries for help were heard. Mrs. Barnett started to her feet, and both looked round in every direction, but nothing was to be seen. The cries were now redoubled, and Hobson exclaimed, "'The sergeant! The sergeant!' And followed by Mrs. Barnett, he rushed towards the burrow, and he had scarcely reached the opening of the snow-house, before he saw Sergeant Long clutching with both hands at his knife." which he had struck in the wall of ice, and calling out loudly, although with the most perfect self-possession. His head and arms alone were visible. Whilst he was digging, the ice had given way suddenly beneath him, and he was plunged into water up to his waist. Hobson merely said, "'Keep hold!' And creeping through the passage, he was soon at the edge of the hole. The poor sergeant seized his hand, and he was soon rescued from his perilous position. "'Good God, Sergeant! 
exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. "'What has happened?' "'Nothing,' replied Long, shaking himself like a wet spaniel, "'except that the ice gave way under me, and I took a compulsory bath.' "'You forgot what I told you about not digging too deeply, then,' said Hobson. "'Beg pardon, sir. I hadn't cut through fifteen inches of the ice, and I expect there was a kind of cavern where I was working. The ice did not touch the water.' It was just like going through a ceiling. If I hadn't been able to hang on by my knife, I should have slipped under the island like a fool. And that would have been a pity, wouldn't it, madam? A very great pity, my brave fellow, said Mrs. Barnett, pressing his hand. Long's explanation was correct. For some reason or another, most likely, from an accumulation of air, the ice had formed a kind of vault above the water and, of course, it soon gave way under the weight of the sergeant and the blows of his chisel. The same thing might happen in other parts of the island, which was anything but reassuring. Where could they be certain of treading on firm ground? Might not the earth give way beneath their feet at any minute? What heart, however brave, could not have sunk at the thought of the thin partition between them and the awful gulf of the ocean? Sergeant Long, however, thought but little of his bath, and was ready to begin mining in some other place. This Mrs. Barnett would not allow. A night in the open air would do her no harm. The shelter of the coppice near would be protection enough for them all, and Sergeant Long was obliged to submit. The camp was, therefore, moved back some thirty yards from the beach, to a rising ground on which grew a few clumps of pines and willows, which could scarcely be called a wood. Towards ten o'clock the disk of the sun began to dip below the horizon, and before it disappeared for the few hours of the night, a crackling fire of dead branches was blazing at the camp. Long had now a fine opportunity of drying his legs, of which he gladly availed himself. He and Hobson talked together earnestly until twilight set in, Mrs. Barnett occasionally joined in the conversation, doing the best she could to cheer the disheartened lieutenant. The sky was bright with stars, and the holy influence of the night could not fail to calm his troubled spirit. The wind murmured softly amongst the pines. Even the sea appeared to be wrapped in slumber, its bosom slightly heaving with the swell, which died away upon the beach with a faint rippling sound. All creation was hushed, not even the wail of a sea-bird broke upon the ear. The crisp crackling of the dead branches was exchanged for a steady flame, and nothing but the voices of the wanderers broke the sublime, the awful silence of the night. "'Who would imagine,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'that we were floating on the surface of the ocean? It really requires an effort to realize it for the sea which is carrying us along in its fatal grasp appears to be absolutely motionless. Yes, madam, replied Hobson, and if the floor of our carriage were solid, if I did not know that sooner or later the keel of our boat will be missing, that some day its hull will burst open, and finally, if I knew where we were going, I should rather enjoy floating on the ocean like this. Well, lieutenant, rejoined Mrs. Barnett, could there be a pleasanter mode of travelling than ours? We feel no motion. Our island has exactly the same speed as the current which is bearing it away. Is it not like a balloon voyage in the air? 
What could be more delightful than advancing with one's own house, garden, park, etc.? A wandering island, with a solid, insubmersible foundation, would really be the most comfortable and wonderful conveyance that could possibly be imagined. I have heard of hanging gardens. Perhaps, some day, floating parks will be invented which will carry us all over the globe. Their size will render them insensible to the action of the waves. They will have nothing to fear from storms, and perhaps, with a favorable wind, they might be guided by means of immense sails. What marvels of vegetation would be spread before the eyes of the passengers when they passed from temperate to torrid zones? With skillful pilots, well acquainted with the currents, it might be possible to remain in one latitude and enjoy a perpetual spring. Hobson could not help smiling at Mrs. Barnett's fancies. The brave woman ran on with such an easy flow of words. She talked with as little effort as Victoria Island moved. And was she not right? It would have been a very pleasant mode of travelling, if there had been no danger of their conveyance melted and being swallowed up by the sea. The night passed on, and the explorers slept a few hours. At daybreak they breakfasted, and thoroughly enjoyed their meal. The warmth and rest had refreshed them, and they resumed their journey at about six o'clock a.m. From Cape Michael to the former Port Barnett, the coast ran in an almost straight line, from south to north, for about eleven miles. There was nothing worthy of note about it. The shores were low and pretty even all the way, and seemed to have suffered no alteration since the breaking of the isthmus. Long, in obedience to the lieutenant, made benchmarks along the beach, that any further change might easily be noted. Hobson was naturally anxious to get back to Fort Hope the same day, and Mrs. Barnett was also eager to return to her friends. It was, of course, desirable under the circumstances that the commanding officer should not be long absent from the fort. All haste was therefore made, and by taking a short-cut they arrived at noon at the little promontory which formerly protected Port Barnett from the east winds. It was not more than eight miles from this point to Fort Hope, and before four o'clock p.m. the shouts of Corporal Joliffe welcomed their return to the factory. End of chapter four. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.